Happy spring. <laughs> oh, let's just pray together for a while. Um, wow. Uh, it's so great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is John Anderson. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And this morning I'm feeling like it's time as a church to do a church plant in Southern California. Are you with me? <laughs> we'll let Mark know. It's great. So excited. Uh, so my job primarily here is that I uh, have the opportunity to oversee our local, our national, our global partnerships. That's most of what I spend my time doing. Uh, it's an awesome job. It's a joy to work with many, many, many of you as you're involved in that. Uh, and then from time to time, I get the opportunity to preach. And it's always a, it's a fun opportunity for me. So it's just great to be with you uh, this morning and have a chance to hang out. So thanks for coming out in the cold and coming together. Um, let me tell you a little bit about myself as a kid. So when I was a child, I had a really uh, active imagination. And uh, early on in life, I learned that uh, my mom's maiden name is Buckingham. And the rumor in our family was that our family had distant ties to the royal family in England. Yes. And so I, I was like, I, this last week as I was preparing, I was like, did I make that up as a kid? Like, was that just being hopeful or whatever? And so I actually called home to confirm that this is true. And it is true, which is kind of awesome. Um, so when I was a kid, this, I would have this fantasy uh, from time to time. And I'm thinking, as I think back, it was probably times when either I was having a bad day or I just gotten in trouble or I had to do my chores. But here's what went through my mind is I would picture that somebody over in uh, Europe somewhere uh, in some old castle was going through all these dusty books, and somewhere along the way they would discover that I was the rightful heir to some sort of wealthy estate that everybody had been searching for for ages. And I would get this call and be like, hey, guess what? You are now the Dirk of Duke of Butterworth or something. I don't know. I wasn't too good at making up the names. And some of you are going to come up afterwards and be like, that's not how that works. Um, but I don't care. I was eight, so <laughs> don't tell me that. And it, in this fantasy, for me, it wasn't so much about the cool title, although that would have been awesome. It was this idea of being part of the royal family and what I assumed that would entail. Like, I assumed that would entail that I would never have to do chores again. As a kid, that was an awesome fantasy. Or that I would, I would get a castle that I could like wander around and get lost in. Somehow like getting lost in my own house seemed like a really cool thing when I was a kid. Now that sounds like a lot of cleaning. Um, and in those moments as a child, I was wishing for, that I had a different identity because I wanted to live a different life. Now, the passage that we're going to look at today is all about the identity of the early Christians and how this new identity that they have compels them, encourages them to live a different life. We're also going to talk about what that has to do with us in our lives today. Now, before we jump into the text, let's give this a little bit of context. So we are in week two of a series uh, titled Hope. And during the series, we are going through the letter uh, by, that we call First Peter. <clears throat> and as Mark talked about last week, this letter was authored by the Apostle Peter, and it was sent out to a whole bunch of different churches throughout the Roman Empire. And it was sent as a letter of encouragement to the small, uh, mostly Gentile, which means non-ethnically Jewish church. And it was sent as an encouragement because they were suffering from all kinds of persecution. Now, one of the ways that they were suffering, and we'll see this in the text today, is that they were uh, the recipients of all kinds of vicious and false rumors that were being said in the general public about Christians. And so Peter's writing to encourage them and to inform them of who they are, of what identity they have, and because of that identity, how they should live differently and with great hope. 
Now today we are going to go through all of chapter 2 in 1 Peter, and this is a lot to cover. Now, uh, 1 Peter is not um, as linear as some of the other letters in the New Testament, so at times it can be a little hard to follow, can get a little confusing. But using really broad strokes, here's how the, this chapter kind of breaks down. It has basically three sections. The first one is verses 3 through 10, which is all about our identity. And then verses 11 through 21, which is about our response to that identity. And then 22 through 25, which is about our example. So that's how we're going to uh, tackle this. So we're going to do this together. So take your Bibles uh, or your phones or whatever you're following along on. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, and if you're having a hard time following finding it. It's a small little book, so it's at the end of your Bible, or use the table of contents. That's great cheating. So are we all ready? This was the response last night, too. It was like, what? Are we ready? Are we going to do it? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Good. We're not being recorded. I'll take my time to get a response. All right. All right. So here we go. We're going to do this together. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read together. Uh, Therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let me just pause here real quick just to give this some context. So right away we're seeing in this chapter that uh, Peter is referring back to some other stuff they talked about in chapter 1. Uh, and Mark covered this last week, so you can check out that sermon. But just in summary, basically what he's saying is that because you've been born again, because you have this new life, you should live differently. And then he gives this uh, really interesting simile of a newborn baby longing for milk. And he's saying you should be like that when it comes to how you long for spiritual growth and your own maturity. Now, for those of you uh, who perhaps have been separated from the newborn stage for a while... Let me share an example from the animal kingdom of what this longing for milk looks like. So check out this clip. Wait a minute, this didn't work. <laughs> All right, I bet you didn't think you were going to watch that at church today, did you? You're like, I don't remember anything, but there was this pig video. I don't know. So that's actually a really great image of what we as a community should look like as we hunger to grow and mature in our faith. And so it's a sign of spiritual health when you're always wanting more. You want more of those things that connect you and help you grow in your relationship with God. Whether it's uh, worshiping together, whether it's in prayer, whether it's reading scripture, whether it's listening to biblical instruction, any of those things that help us connect and grow in our spiritual uh, walk. When you hunger for that, that's a sign of spiritual health. So here's another sign. If you regularly leave here on the weekends after gathering and you're like, that was good, but I wanted more, I want more. Take that as a sign of spiritual health. That's a good thing. And now Peter's going to continue, and he's going to talk about uh, the Christian's new identity. So follow with me. Jump back into the chapter, uh, starting in verse 4. Here's what he says. As you come to him, this is Christ, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, 
And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Okay, let me just pause here for a second. Because in these five verses, there is a lot going on. And it's rich with meaning if we are really well-versed uh, in the Old Testament, as many of these original uh, readers and listeners would have been. But for some of us, we may not be so much. And so it's easy for us to miss exactly what Peter is trying to communicate here. So look back at the text. In verse 4, he uses another simile. He says that the recipients of this letter are like what? Like living stones, right? And they're being built into a spiritual house. This is part of their identity. This is part of who they are. But what does that mean? <laughs> well, uh, we can tell from other clues in the text that this is a reference to God's temple. And God's temple was this unique connection between the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. And God's temple was this unique space where those two worlds overlapped. It was a holy space. It was a space where God dwelt. And here's the incredible thing that's happening. As we look back at this, this is what Peter's saying. He's saying that this community of believers, that they are now the temple, that they are the holy place where God dwells. That's an incredible statement, an encouraging statement. But not only that, what else does it say? It says that they're priests. And the role of the priest was to point people to the one true God. They were mediators between people and God. This was their mission. This is what they were to be all about. This was the purpose of the priesthood. And so in just a few short sentences, Peter is saying this to this mostly Gentile Christian group of people, that they are, they are part of a much bigger, a much older, a much better story than just being a small scattered church around the Roman Empire. No, they've been brought in to God's people going way back to Abraham. And they are holy people, a holy community on a mission to share God's love with everyone. And this identity, this new identity that, that they have as a group of people is built entirely upon Jesus, right? It says here that he is the cornerstone. Now, um, I am super not handy. Like I, I can barely do much more than change a light bulb. So as I was reading that, I was like, that sounds cool, but I have no idea what a cornerstone is. So I had to look it up. Um, so for any of you who are like me, here is a definition of what a cornerstone is. A cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Important, since all other stones are set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. And so not only is Jesus the cornerstone for these believers, but he, he's also, as we see in the next couple of verses, he's a stumbling block for others. Because at that time, many, in fact most, Jews and Gentiles alike, rejected Jesus. In 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 22-25, Paul describes partially why here. He says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. So this both reflects these different groups and their worldviews. And that's what's important to them. But we, this is the apostles, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
And as we continue uh, just to look out in the world today, this continues to be the truth, right? In fact, the majority of people continue uh, to find that Jesus and the Jesus that's revealed through Scripture is a stumbling block. And now Peter goes on in the text to point out that the identity of this church is not always who they used to be. They are not who they were. And so he gives this very cool summary statement in verses 9 and 10. So let's look at it together. Uh, Jump back into the text, 9 and 10. He continues to write this. But you, this is the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, these are a couple incredibly encouraging verses. Because he's saying to this group of people who are experiencing all kinds of suffering and rejection, he's saying, you've been saved by grace. You have a new identity. And here's a few things about it. You're chosen. You're priests. You're a holy community. You're special. Why? So that God might use you to make God's goodness known to all. And in, in just this short little bit, he communicates to them that they, this group of people and all followers of Christ have been given the highest possible status they can imagine. This is incredibly encouraging. Now, not only have they been given this, but then Peter goes on to urge them, because of who they are, because of this new identity, they are to live differently. Now, before we check out and see what that differently looks like, let's just pause here for a second and consider what this has to do with us here as a church. So we too are living stones being built into a holy house. We are God's temple. And what's interesting about this is that this is, this is a corporate identity. This is true about us as a group. And we live in an individualistic culture, and so this is hard for us sometimes to get our heads around. This is not how most of us naturally think. We don't think in sense of community. But this is true of our corporate identity, which means we need each other, right? And so take a moment and just turn and look at the people around you, just Look at them, and I can see you whether you're doing this or not. So some of you are still looking. So take a moment. Try not to make awkward eye contact. I like the man head nod. There's always like a, this is not weird. Cool. Yes, good. Now, as you're looking around, you're looking at God's temple. This is part of who we are as a community of people. That means that God is dwelling in and amongst us in some sort of incredible, mysterious, and yet also true way. Now, not only that, but we are also God's priesthood, which means that we have a mission that as individuals and as a community that we are mediators between people and God. It means that it is our calling to be the go-between between people who are far from God and a God who desperately loves them and wants to be in relationship. That's what we are supposed to be all about. That's not just my job, although it is my job. It's your job. This is what we are called to do. In fact, this is part of who we are. This is our identity. And then finally, just like the early church, we have been given the highest possible status we could imagine. We have been invited into God's family. This is part of who we we are, chosen people. This is way better than finding out that we're part of the royal family. 
but do we believe that? And also, what difference does that make? Like, how should that play out? What does that look like? That can give us warm and fuzzies maybe in a moment, but like, what does that mean for how I should live when I leave here and go throughout my week? Well, Peter's going to get into some of that, and I should warn you now that Peter's instructions are going to sound pretty strange to us in our, our cultural context. In fact, <laughs> they may sound offensive to some of you. So with that set up, here we go. Jump back into verse 11. Here's what he writes. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Okay, let me just make uh, just a couple quick comments here. So verse 12 really serves as a thesis statement of sorts. And this statement uh, is basically saying that the reason they're supposed to live such good lives is that they should live them to counter the vicious rumors that are going on about Christians in that community. Now at this time, some of the rumors that were going on about Christians when they gathered together is that when they did that, they ate human flesh. Or another, and that might sound ridiculous to us, but like this is just one of the rumors that was happening. Another one is that they were partaking in all kinds of different sexual sins. And I wish I could kind of share some of the examples with you, but they're so graphic that uh, it just wouldn't be appropriate in this context. And so if you want to like Google that, go for it. Just don't do it with your kids. Um, but these were some nasty rumors. And so Peter's saying, live such good lives to counter the perception of the general public about who Christians are and who Christ is. And not only that, but also live such good lives as a form of evangelism, as a form of sharing the good news with others. And then he goes on to be even more specific as he continues on in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And here he says it again. This is why they're supposed to live this way. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Okay. <laughs> wow. All right, there's a few just kind of like buzzwords here uh, that set off some alarms for some of us. Uh, first of all, he starts off the word submit. And this is a hard word in our culture. This is not a popular word. Um, and there's good reason for that. Like the word submit has been used uh, to cause all kinds of harm. It's been abused by many in our culture and throughout history. Not only that, but we realize how radical this statement is when we realize the context of what Peter's writing this in. So, Because look at this, the last verse again. He's instructing them to submit or to obey the emperor and all authorities. Now, at this time, the emperor was a guy named Nero, and he was not a good dude. Here's just a few things to know about Nero. Uh, he came to power at age seven. Um, he attempted to kill his own mother, and then he successfully killed his own mother. He killed his first wife, and then he was accused uh, and allegedly killed his second wife. He was the one who set fire to Rome and was behind these different fires that went off throughout the city. But then he in turn blamed the Christians for doing that, which led to this horrendous persecution. And then he ended his own life at age 31 
as political power started to slip out of his hands and he committed suicide. And it's this leader that Peter's writing to the early church saying, submit to him and to all other authorities. What? Really? Why? Well, here's why. They are to submit because by doing good, even in the midst of incredible hardship, it has the power to change the perception of the general public and to reveal the true nature and character of God. And so even though they are free in Christ, and this is part of their identity, and this is an incredible freedom, they are to use that freedom to do good and to serve others around them, even those who are persecuting them. Now, this is an incredibly challenging calling. And I love this quote by uh, Martin Luther that sums up this whole idea. He writes this, uh, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. We love that part, right? A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Oof. Let's just focus on the first half, <laughs> right? Now, it's also good to note here that uh, submission in this text does not mean that they are supposed to obey the government's rules and laws if they are directly counter to God's commands, um, biblical submission is not about blind adherence to whoever's in power. That's not what's happening here. Uh, be, and we know this because we see lots of examples of God's people disobeying laws that are counter to God's commands throughout Scripture. Um, the book of Daniel is a great place to start if you don't believe me. There's lots of stories along those lines, so you should just check that out. Submission here is about honoring authority and putting others before yourself and serving and obeying when those laws are not counter to God's commands. And so what Peter is saying is to the small, marginalized community of Christians that they are to live out their hope, their new identity, who they are now as God's chosen people this way, in countercultural submission towards others and doing good for all. And as they do that, this incredible thing happens. God is glorified, and the perception, the broader perception of Christians and of Christ is transformed. And the letter goes on to talk about a specific case of submission. And if uh, at this point this doesn't feel countercultural enough to you, it will now. All right? So jump back in. Verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. <laughs> okay. These are some hard verses in our modern context, right? Because when we hear and read uh, the word slaves and then the command to submit to the masters, uh, this sets off all kinds of different alarms in our minds. Or I would argue it probably should set off all kinds of different alarms in our minds. This is one of those verses and one of those passages uh, that is the reason that many people reject Scripture as being antiquated and not having anything to do with our lives and not being true. And so it's really important here to remember that this letter was not written to us, but
but for us, which means this, that we are peeking into this foreign culture that is not our own, and so we have to be so careful of all the different assumptions that we bring to the text. And so what is going on here? Well, the images that may come to your mind uh, as you, when you hear the word slave um, may not be helpful because they're likely tied to the slavery that took place in our country here in America. Or they may be tied to uh, modern slavery that's happening around the globe. And in both those cases, those situations, those realities, are very different than what's taking place here in this passage. So one of the key ways is that in the New Testament, uh, one of the key ways that the slavery was different than what took place here in America is that it was not based on race. So almost anybody could become a slave. In fact, it was not uncommon for people to sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt or even as a pathway to Roman citizenship, which meant something very important. It meant that they were not slaves forever. It was a period of time. Um, according to one um, commentary that I read, it said that nearly 30% of the population in urban areas around the Roman Empire were made up of slaves. And we can tell from the text here in 1 Peter, the verses we just read, that a certain percentage of the early church uh, was made up of slaves. And some of the roles that slaves would uh, do would include things like teachers, doctors, lawyers, artists, etc. Now, with that said, this is also not like the modern American workforce. Because in our case, if we don't like a job, generally we can quit it, Right? If you're experiencing abuse of some kind, generally there's a way out of that. And the economic system of the Roman and Greek empire was entirely built upon, it was anchored in this system. And it's within this system that Peter exhorts those in the church who are slaves to do this, to serve in a way that transcends the cultural norms and points to the love and grace of God through their day-to-day -day behavior. And this appeal is regardless of the kind of master they have. And in every case, when Peter's calling for submission, he points out that there's no benefit in suffering for doing wrong. He's like, if that happens, that's just like, that's how the system works. But it is commendable to suffer when doing good. Because by doing good, regardless of the circumstances, it had this way of being a witness to God's goodness and grace. And then he points out that Christ was the perfect example of suffering for doing good. And he shares more about that example, and that's how we'll finish up this chapter. So jump back in one last time to verse 22. He writes this. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so Peter is reminding this community who has experienced and is experiencing rejection and suffering that Christ, too, was rejected. And that he experienced great suffering on their behalf, that he suffered and died on the cross so that they might have new life 
and hope so that we may have new life and hope and that they and we are given a new identity so that we might live differently. Now, how in the world do we contextualize verses 11 through 25? Because they're so countercultural and so it's just such a different context than our own. What do we do with this? Well, it's good to remember that we do not live under a dictatorship. We live in a democracy where it is okay, it is not being rebellious to enter the social and political process to try to bring about change. Also, none of us are slaves. Praise God. And so what do we do with this? Well, it starts with remembering, just like these early Christians, with who we are. What is our identity? And remembering that we too have a new identity, that together we are God's temple, that God dwells in and amongst us. And not only that, but that we are God's holy priests. That's who you are. We are mediators between people and God. And because of that, and in light of that, we are to live radical lives of submission to one another and stand out for doing good. Let's look back one more time at verse 12. Uh, it will be up on the screen. And let's think about how do we make this our life thesis statement. So let me just read it one more time. Live such good lives among the pagans. And this is uh, just a real quick word on pagans. So pagans uh, now means something like really negative, but at the time just meant non-Christians. So how do we live such good lives among the non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So let me ask you a question. What are some of the uh, common stereotypes, the common negative stereotypes about Christians in our culture today? Can you think of a few of those? So I did a little straw poll this week as well as looked at a number of different surveys online. And here's just a few of the words that are commonly used in our culture today to describe the perception of Christians, uh, specifically here in America. Uh, here's a few of them. See if these sound familiar to you all. We are narrow-minded people. We're hateful. We're hypocritical. We're intolerant. We're anti-intellectual. We lack unity. And sadly, the list goes on. Now, here's the thing. None of those things are true about the community of people that God has called us to be as we're following Christ. And so, how do we change the narrative? Well, one option is we can get really angry about it and try to fight back. But as we look at Peter here, he encourages us to live such good lives that while people may not agree with our theology, they cannot deny the fruit of the Spirit they see evident in our lives as individuals and as a community of people. And so when they see us, they see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here's uh, just one corporate example that I was a witness to uh, very recently within our church. So just a, a little over a week ago on Thursday and Friday night, uh, over 250 of you came out to Mendota Elementary and Westside Elementary School, and together... Uh, we packed 50,000 meals 
for kids uh, in a school in Haiti, with, which is one of our partners there. And um, it was awesome. It was really fun to come out together. And here's the thing. We could have had that same event here in our building, here at Sprecher, and probably had more volunteers. It also would have been a lot easier to plan. But here's what we would have missed had we done that. We would have missed the opportunity to serve side by side with kids, parents, teachers, police officers, and just a, a whole bunch of other people from the community who are not part of our church. And as far as we know, like not part of any church. And as I had the opportunity to uh, just kind of wander from table to table both nights as we were doing these meal packs, um, I overheard a conversation uh, that played out slightly differently, but it was basically the same conversation many times over. And it went something like this. Somebody at the table, because none of us, you couldn't tell like where people were from. We just all had hairnets and the, the you know, we looked all, we looked great. That's what we looked like. And so as, as I was wandering around, I'd hear people who were not Door Creekers saying like, oh, where are you from to the rest of the table? Oh, oh a, a church. Oh, that's Door Creek. Where's that at? Oh, that's cool. And, and, and why are you doing this? Oh, that, that's really cool. Well, thanks for being part of this. Yeah, wow, cool. Uh, I heard about one 10-year-old boy who uh, was part of this meal pack, and he was in town not because he went to that school, but because he was in town just for the weekend because his dad lived in the neighborhood. And so he got involved with the meal pack, and he shared uh, with somebody else at the table that this was the most fun he's ever had in his life. <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. I hope it even goes uphill from here for you. But <laughs> so cool. One uh, West Side staff uh, person who was there, she was there with her whole family, and she wrote this. She said, this was not only so much fun, but it was also an easy way to talk to my own kids about complex issues such as poverty and hunger. It was also, an ama it was also amazing to see Door Creek volunteers, community volunteers, and West Side families working side by side, packaging the meals, which will help feed Hungry children. I have a whole list of just adorable quotes from the kids at Mendota that include things like, oh, it was the most fun I've ever had, to I'm so excited that I got to help change the world, which was like, that's awesome optimism, to um, I wish we could do this every week, which I was like, no. <laughs> but I love that. That's awesome. And here's the thing. Events like that help change the narrative about who Christians are. And by God's grace, they bring glory to God. But changing the narrative is also about, and I would argue even more about, the hundred of little things and little choices that you and I make every day. Because here's the truth, is that we have a new identity. We are God's chosen people. And therefore, Door Creek, how might we live countercultural lives of submission and service to those around us? How can you bring your A-game to work when you have a terrible manager? How can you be a person who's generous to others even when it seems like everybody around you is stingy? How can you honor those who are in authority even when you think they are a poor leader? How can you love your spouse or your kids when they're being less than lovely? How can you speak well of someone even when you know that they're gossiping about you? Now, these are all small but powerful ways that we can submit and serve those around us. And it's only possible for us to live like that because of who we are in Christ. And together, 
we become this powerful witness to the God that we serve as we live lives of countercultural submission and service to others, even in the midst of suffering. And so may we become more and more that kind of church to God's glory until one day he returns. So let me pray for us. God, I confess that it's hard for me to get my mind around uh, this identity that I have, that we have in you. And so that's what I pray for. I pray that by your grace that you would help each of us um, who have placed our faith in you to understand more and more of what it means and who we are in you. And as we comprehend that, both with our minds and our hearts, that, that it might transform how we live. And help us to be a community that is countercultural in how we submit and serve others to your glory. And help your name be known as a people who are loving uh, until one day you return in your name.